And uh, so he's drawing on what people know about roses and perhaps how roses were viewed in society, how roses were viewed in literature already to cause the reader to kind of pause and contemplate, okay, well, what, what does it mean for his love to be like a red rose? And by drawing on those other things about the nature of roses, about how roses had been depicted at other times, he's able to say a lot more with a few words than what he's actually saying. Uh, so we, that is one of, one of the beauties of literature sometimes, and, and one of the beauties of communication, is that ability of, of words to be able to draw on metaphors and figures of speech and to be able to pack a lot more into what's being said than just what the literal words themselves mean. So this morning I wanted to look at Matthew 5.13. And um, if you want to turn to one of the pew Bibles, one of the chair Bibles, I guess, uh, page 810. Just this one verse initially, Matthew 5.13, where Jesus tells his disciples... You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus is starting out here with a metaphor. You are the salt of the earth. And uh, kind of like a red, red rose could cause the reader to pause and to stop and think, well, in what sense... What are roses like, and how does that relate to what's being said here? I thought we would look a little bit at salt in the same way. And we can oftentimes run into verses like this and read it with what we already know about what it's saying, kind of fueling how we're reading the verse. Oh, okay, well, this is what the application of this verse is. And so when I read, you are the salt of the earth, automatically insert what I already know about the verse. But I think it's good sometimes to take a step back and to take the words at face value and just to consider them maybe in, in their fuller context. Uh, I think of uh, the similarity with like when Jesus told his disciples to take up their cross daily. Can hear that and say, like, "Oh, take up our cross daily and follow." Okay, well, this is what that means. And yes, I've learned about that verse. And I've heard preaching on it. I've, I've studied and read on it. And here's what it means to take up our cross. But we can end up losing the full impact of those words compared to if we had put ourselves in the shoes of those who are hearing it for the first time and what a cross meant to them and the just how much more could be viewed and, and could be said about what it might mean to take up your cross. So this morning, what I'd like to do is spend a little while just looking at salt in how it shows up in the Bible and in what historically was viewed and you know, salt's use and how salt was viewed at the time and then see how that might fuel how we view this verse. So that's kind of what, what we're going to do. But let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for being a God of words and being a God of communication and being a God of rich and deep and at times very simple 
and at times very complex, at times blunt, at times this very ornate and elaborate communication. We pray that you will deepen our love for you and deepen our love and understanding for the words that you have for us in your word. Please open our eyes and our hearts this morning to what you would have for us. And um, we pray that we would leave here knowing you better and loving you more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, just a little bit about salt in the Bible. How are the, what are the different ways that salt shows up in the Bible? Uh, first, we see that it was to be included with their offerings. So if we look at Leviticus 2.13, it says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Actually, just two verses before, he was talking about how they were not allowed to use leaven or honey in their offerings, but rather they had to use salt. And a similar thing in Ezekiel 43, verses 23 through 24. When you have finished purifying the altar, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's one thing that we see is it was actually a commandment in the Levitical system that when they offered certain types of offerings that salt had to be present, salt had to be rubbed into the meat, salt had to be sprinkled onto the offering. Then also in the incense, Exodus 30 says, The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacte and Annika and Galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each that shall be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. So the offerings and then also the incense was supposed to have salt included. Then salt shows up in a different way, an expression that shows up in a couple of verses. Numbers 18, 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And then Second Chronicles, uh, this is Abijah, the son of Rehoboam. Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zemariam, that is on the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? And what we're going to do is I'm just kind of kind of read through these verses, then we'll circle back as we've, after we've looked at how salt shows up in a variety of Old Testament verses and New Testament, and also how it was viewed and used historically. And then we'll add a little bit of con, or a commentary onto some of these verses on why these expressions were the, what they were and, and what some of the meaning that we can draw from why salt was used in some of the ways that it was. 
and salt also just has some references just being used as a, a flavoring or a seasoning, like Job 6.6. 6. Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? That part, taste in the juice of the mallow, has um, translators kind of scratching their head like, yeah, we, we take the, the Hebrew and we don't completely know what it means. Some translations say something along the lines of, is there any taste in the white of an egg? But at the very least, we can look at the first half of the verse where it says, that which can, that which is tasteless, be eaten without salt. So salt, historically and biblically, being used just as something that added some flavoring, some seasoning. And we see that metaphorically used in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then a couple verses that use salt as a, a way of purifying things. 2 Kings 2, now when... Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water, and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So salt was what they put into the water to purify it, to get rid of the contamination. Uh, Ezekiel 16.4 And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. So, culturally at the time, it appears that salt was something that was used to rub on a newborn to provide some type of cleansing and and purifying and protection against contamination. Genesis 19.26, but Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And we'll we'll look later at at why I included this in this purification kind of of a context of some of the verses. But then salt also something that would make barren and desolate. Deuteronomy 29 says, In the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of his great anger, of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. So this passage, salt, comes on with, uh, in the context of the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt. But then a similar use in Judges chapter 9, and Abimelech fought against the city all that day. 
He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. And then Jeremiah 17, 6. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But then salt also shows up in the Bible as a, a sign of fellowship and friendship. Ezra 4, these are the people who are trying to oppose the work of rebuilding Jerusalem and the walls of the city. And they, they said to the Israelites, now it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, oh, sorry, I believe this is in, in their letter to the king, if I recall correctly, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. So here, the, the way that they expressed knowing the king, or in a sense being friends with the king, is they said, we eat the salt of the palace. And then a passage that is somewhat of a parallel passage to Matthew 5.13 from Mark chapter 9 and then similar uh, verse in Luke 14. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There are a few other verses that we could look at as well as just a bunch of verses that make reference to uh, the, the salt sea. I, I left out you know, a bunch of verses that we could read. It's not just in the salt sea. Uh, geographical references like that. But that covers the vast majority of the verses that have salt being used in a variety of ways. And what I want to do is touch on just a couple points about how salt was used and viewed historically at the time and then tie some of these pieces together about how it's being portrayed in some of these verses and then how that relates to Matthew 5.13. So historically... The main use of salt was as a preservative to keep food from rotting. And we, we are very blessed and privileged to live at a time when we can just toss stuff in the refrigerator, toss stuff in the freezer, and it stays, it stays healthy to eat. It stays you know, something that will not give us disease, that will not make us sick uh, for really long amounts of time. But outside of refrigeration especially if you're talking about something like meat, it's just not going to last very long unless you rub some salt in it and the salt acts as a purifier, a, uh, something that will, will kill most bacteria that come in contact with the meat and keep the meat safe to eat for a lot longer than it would otherwise. I mean, even historically, like if you go uh, as recently as World War II, that's when spam really took off. Because the, the U.S. military wanted to be able to have meat for a lot more of the soldiers on the front, but meat just doesn't last that long. And Hormel came along with salted pork, uh, spam, 
And it, I forget the exact figures. It was a couple months ago that, that I looked at, at some of the figures of just how much spam the army bought at the time and served to, to the, their, their soldiers out on the front line. But salted meat, even as recently as World War II, being widely used for that purpose of preserving and keeping free from contamination. But then salt was also used at different times as a precious commodity that was used for trading or even for payment. The Roman soldiers were frequently paid in salt. It was their, it was their salarium. Salarium being a Latin word that literally means salt money. And it's where we get the word salary today. Our word salary comes from the fact that Roman soldiers were frequently paid their salary their solarium, in salt. And so salt had in, in the minds of a lot of people throughout different parts of history this idea of something that is very valuable, that is precious, that is worth a lot and can be used even as a, a form of payment. But then some of the Arabic cultures have um, a different take on things and has a strong association of salt with treaties or compacts. The Arabic word for salt is actually something that can be used as a word for a treaty or a compact or an arrangement or agreement that you are making with the person. Uh, so, yeah, salt being synonymous with treaty or compact, but then a lot of, yeah, it's a little bit in that context of a treaty or a compact that you are making with the person, there's an Arab custom of pledging friendship or of confirming a treaty by eating food containing salt with the person that you are entering into that arrangement with. Um, and then we, we saw that a little bit with the, with the um, Ezra passage where they were telling the king uh, that, hey, we are referring to themselves as people who ate salt of the palace, ate the palace salt. Uh, we actually sit down and share salt in the royal palace. We are friends with the king. We are on his side. We, in a sense, have a treaty with the king. Uh, and then finally, throughout history, salt has also been something that is added for the sake of its flavor. It has a great ability to enhance sweetness and to, and to lessen bitterness. So some of these different biblical and historical things in mind, if we revisit the way that salt showed up in some of these passages, we can add a little bit more to our perspective possibly. So first, there are the, the first couple passages that we started out with where it's talking about salt being added to the sacrifices and being added to the incense. And we, we have that aspect of salt purifying and protecting and preserving against contamination and having metaphorically the opposite effect of, of leaven. And so there's this view of, okay, the offerings should have something added to it that is keeping it clean, keeping it pure, keeping it free from contamination, preserving it. Um, but I think it's interesting, though, that the offerings that they added needed that addition of salt. I, I think we can draw an application there of the things that we do that we would view as being an offering that we are presented to God in and of our own strength 
in and of our own actions, it's, it's, it's not enough. It needs the additional purification and the additional cleansing of the grace of God to accompany those things. So the, the offerings were great, but it needed that additional cleansing and purifying along with it. We saw those couple verses about the covenant of salt and drawing some, pulling some of these pieces together, we could say that, well, a covenant of salt, what does that mean? It's a, a covenant that was preserved and protected from contamination. It was a permanent covenant, a lasting covenant because it would not rot and decay. It was a covenant of friendship, relationship. It was a pleasant, savory, tasty covenant. And it was a precious and valuable covenant because it was paid for at a a great price. When Colossians says, let your speech be seasoned with salt, we could say, well, among other things, that, that could mean that our words should guard against rot and decay. Our words should preserve, not putrefy. That our words should form bonds of friendship rather than creating enemies. That our words should be pleasant and tasteful, even as salt has all those different properties. We saw some of the passages that referred to salt making uh, an area desolate or barren in a common practice historically uh, where if a, in a city or an area had been conquered, they would cover the ground in salt and it would make it so that nothing could grow there that just became desolate and barren. And um, for that application with salt, I, I think it's helpful to see a parallel with water. Because what we see in scriptures, water is something that is used to cleanse and to purify. You, you had the, the basin outside the tabernacle and then the temple where the priests would wash themselves with water, would cleanse themselves with water. You have different biblical images of being cleansed with water. But then we also see that water can be used to completely wipe out in order to start anew, like we saw with the flood or even at creation of the earth, was, of the earth being covered with waters. Um, but then of the flood of the earth being completely covered with water. In a similar way, it's like salt in small amounts acts to preserve that which otherwise would rot and decay, but in vast amounts, it completely obliterates or completely eradicates the source of the contamination, the thing that is decayed, even as water in small amounts can be a cleansing and a purifying thing, but in enough, it has the effect of making desolate and barren if all that is there is something that is viewed as something that is not uh, worthy in and of itself to, to grow. And then the Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt. You could take that as just, well, salt is something that is lasting and will, will be there for a long time. But then with, with the effect of salt of, in a lot of these different verses, of salt being something that is supposed to preserve from contamination and to preserve from rot and decay. And then in the verse that we'll be looking at here again in just a second, of you are the salt of the earth, 
uh, I think there's maybe some irony there. Uh, it's as if God turned Lot's wife into what she should have been all along in the city where she was. It's like you were not having the influence in your city of being that salt in that city to affect those around you in a positive way, to, to keep from contamination, to keep from moral decay. And because you were not being that in the way that you should have been in that city, then okay, as kind of a, uh, an irony in a sense, let's turn you into what you should have been in that city. I'm sure there are other ways that you can take that, but that was just one application that I saw of in the context of what salt is and what it does and how it's used as a, a, an analogy, as a metaphor in the Bible, why might it have been a pillar of salt? And then back to Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So you are the salt. You are the salt of the earth. So with all these different things in mind, couple of things that we, that we can draw from this is there is a sense in which you could say when Jesus told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, these, you, you could draw an application of you are precious and valuable. Even as salt is used as a source of payment for Roman soldiers at the time because it is viewed as being precious and valuable that when I say, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Part of what he could be saying there is you are precious and valuable to me. You have great worth in my sight. Uh, more directly though, in the context of the application that he's drawing for them, we are salt of the earth in that we are to preserve the earth from contamination, rot, and decay. We are to have that effect on our society, and on our culture of preserving and protecting from contamination, from moral decay. But I really like the way that the verse in Second Kings put it, where Elisha tossed the water. Because what he said was, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. In other words, it wasn't the salt itself that was doing the work. It was God miraculously doing the work through the salt. And in that sense, it's good for us to keep in mind that even as we are called to be salt in the earth, that it's not us. It is Christ acting and working through us and in us. That we, in and of ourselves, do not have what it takes, do not have what is needed to be that protecting and preserving influence on society, but rather we are able to act like that only insofar as we are filled with Christ and with the Holy Spirit to work 
and to act in that kind of a way. So what does it look like, though, for believers to be the salt of the earth? Well, in the immediate context, one thing we could say is that it looks like the Beatitudes. Jesus had just finished giving the Beatitudes. And so if we ask ourselves, what does it look like for us to be the salt of the earth? We could say, among other things, it looks like being poor in spirit. It looks like being meek. It looks like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It looks like being merciful. What else might it look like? It might look like praying for society and for the leaders in society. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's a way that, that we can be that preserving influence on our society, is how we pray for the world, how we pray for the rulers and leaders in the world. What else might it look like to be the salt of the earth? Well, in general, we could say that it looks like living lives of faith, mercy, humility, and truth. Unashamed of the gospel. Um, even as Christine mentioned this morning with the Good Neighbor team, that is an aspect of being salt of the earth, of just the way that they are loving on others and caring for others and wanting to be there to be a help and a support to others in any way that they can. But as we live these lives, uh, live these lives where our values are not the world's values, our goals are not the world's goals, our actions at times are not the world's actions, it will be contrary to the world. And at times, the world will mock it and reject it. And the ironic thing, though, is even while mocking and rejecting, the world will be benefiting from the influence that Christians have on society, of just tempering the moral decay and corruption. Uh, it kind of made me think of the Edict of Nantes. Uh, in French history, you had a lot of conflicts over the years after the Protestant Reformation between the French Protestants, who became known as the Huguenots, and the French Roman Catholics. And the Huguenots were um, very persecuted for a while. And eventually, late 1500s, the, uh, the, the French government passed something called the Edict of Nantes. And what it said was, it said, French Protestants, we will allow you to live your lives to a certain extent free from oppression and free from persecution. Um, you'll, you'll have to live in these certain particular cities that are just going to be for you, but as long as you're there and you kind of mind your own business, we will stop persecuting you. And it was like that for around 100 years. But then Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes. 
And they, there was a movement at the time to say, yeah, no, we, we decide about the whole, like, yeah, we'll kind of get along with the Protestants in France. We're, we decided we don't want that anymore. And what happened was a bunch of the Huguenots left the country. And what France realized in the wake of that is they realized, oh, those Huguenots, they were kind of like the vast, vast, vast majority of our honest, hardworking, well-skilled middle class. And we just like drove a huge percentage of them out of our country. And if nothing else, economically, we're suffering now because they were honest, hardworking, well-skilled people, and we just got rid of like the vast majority of our middle class is what, is what happened. And so, in, in, I don't know, that just kind of came to mind as an example of how the world can be at a place where they both benefit from us being the light of Christ, being the salt of the earth, while also not liking it and rejecting it and wanting us not to live our lives in such a way that we are being salt and light. So in general, we can live lives of faith, mercy, humility, and truth, and being unashamed of the gospel. But then when I was asking myself, okay, what are other specific ways in which it would look like a believer to be the salt of the earth? And what I thought was, Answering that question is much like answering the question, what does it look like for a believer to be part of the body of Christ? And the answer to that question depends on what part of the body you are, right? Even as Paul said, not everyone is, you know, ahead. Not everyone is, and that some of you are an arm, and some of you are a voice, and some of you, I know I'm this isn't exactly his wording of the body parts that he used, but I'm drawing on the analogy a little bit. Uh, that, that, so what it looks like to be part of the body of Christ depends on what part of the body you are functioning as. In a similar way, what does it look like to be salt of the earth, I think depends a lot just on who you are and how God made you and what particular strengths you have and what your... You know, personality is, what talents and abilities God has given you. So for example, for uh, an artist, being the salt of the earth might involve just making good quality art that portrays truth and beauty and hope. Uh, art that is not wrought with what so much of modern art is these days that is trying to represent the lack of meaning, the lack of truth, the lack of order, the chaos, and just hopelessness that is there so much. Um, I hadn't initially planned on sharing this, but I guess just to give an example, I remember several years ago reading about this artist and the way that she would make her art, and because she really viewed it as a statement of the world and a statement of reality and a statement of truth or the lack thereof, um, is she would fast so that her stomach was empty and take some kind of milk with food coloring and drink a big old glass of it and then induce vomiting and vomit 
the colored milk onto the canvas and repeat that process with other colors and preserve it in some way so that whatever kind of milk substance she used wouldn't, you know, rot and decay. Uh, and that was, that was her art. It was very, very highly praised among some circles because, well, what was she re- reflecting? She was reflecting the viewpoints of a world that is saying there is no order, there is no truth, everything is just up to random chance, and it's just the result of our, nat- of our natural biological processes, and that's it, and literally vomiting art onto canvas. Uh, so, yeah, for some, being the salt of the earth, it, an artist, it might be portraying truth and beauty and hope. Um, it might be a person who has a natural bent for pursuing politics, whether it be a local city council or the U.S. House of Representatives, but going about it in a way that is supporting truth and justice, that is supporting biblical morals. It might be a person who has a natural boldness and eloquence to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. It might be a person who has a tremendous ability just to be a comforting presence for a person who is sick or poor or suffering. And so I would encourage you to consider what ways has God blessed me, what abilities has God given me, and what might it look like in my life for me to be a preserving influence in the world, to be salt in the earth, whether it be at my place of work, in my neighborhood, in society in general, am I doing that? Am I being that in whatever context God has put me? And, and what might that look like? The verse goes on to say, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's a warning and a call here to be that kind of preserving and tasty, flavorful salt and not to lose its taste, not to lose its saltiness. And and there are some who point out to say, well, this must be purely a a, a metaphorical use of losing its taste, of losing its flavor, of losing its saltiness, because salt, as far as the compound sodium chloride is concerned, it's very, very, very stable, and that doesn't happen. So we can say, well, that's very contrary to nature for salt to do that, uh, but they're, they're, salt in its natural form comes in a wide variety of, of well, wide variety of forms. And one of, or some of the ways that it is mined or extracted has all sorts of impurities in it. And those impurities sometimes add other elements, add other health benefits. Uh, like, for example, you hear like discussions of, oh, Himalayan salt versus like this other kind of, and what makes some of these kinds of salts great is that it naturally has trace elements of other substances that have health benefits. Well, the way the salt was extracted, sometimes it 
had a decent amount of salt, but a lot of other materials in it. And some of those kinds of salt, if exposed to moisture and sunlight, the I think what would happen is the moisture would dissolve the salt in the substance, and then it would evaporate. And what you were left with was something that looked a whole lot like salt, only it had completely lost all of its salt. And there are even some who had done stuff like imported huge quantities of some of this stuff that seemed like it was going to be good salt, only to find out after a little bit that, oh, the little bit of salt that was there has completely left, has completely vanished, has completely dissolved and then evaporated. And what we have is completely useless. And in those cases, what they would use it for, about the only thing they could find to do with it is just to toss it on the ground, and it would serve a function kind of like gravel does for us now, of, well, it's at least decent, it's a little bit better to walk on than dirt or mud. So, all right, well, at least it's being, you know, used, kind of. But it's definitely no longer able to serve its function, its intended function of preserving from rot and decay. And so Jesus has a warning here of don't allow that to happen to you. And what does that look like? It looks like just abiding in Christ, recognizing our dependence on him and staying focused on him first and foremost so that he is regularly infusing us with those qualities, with the grace, with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we are able to live our lives in such a way that we are functioning as that preserving, as that flavor-giving aspect of salt. So there can be a call to also pause and consider to what extent have you perhaps lost some of your saltiness? And to what extent do you need to go back to Christ and to seek him afresh and to seek him in new ways, to be reinvigorated with those qualities of salt that allows it to do what is intended to do in the world. Okay. And that's what I wanted to go over. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully, and I, I encourage you to, one of the reasons I wanted to do the whole, let's look at how salt shows up in, uh, in other verses in the Bible, is that can be a really rich thing to do with a variety of topics, whether it be from Genesis chapter 1, how does light show up in the Bible, and then trace the way that, that light shows up, and then how it ends up being used as a metaphor in a variety of ways, or how does water used literally and figuratively in the Bible, or birth, or barrenness, wide variety of themes like that. There's a, a branch of biblical theology that, that looks at, okay, rather than taking some aspect of, of what we know and understand about God and looking at it topic by topic, I mean, yes, let's look at it topic by topic, rather than just trying to kind of summarize the topic, let's trace how the topic develops over time in Scripture and how it is used and how the metaphor grows and expands as you make your way through the Bible. 
I want to give just a little flavor of that and then see how it might cause us to look at some verses that we've perhaps seen a lot of times, but perhaps with a slightly fresh look and a slightly fresh take at, oh, there's more to being salt than just what we could more directly take from the passage. And maybe there's a little bit more out of this that we can get if we take that idea in its fuller context. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are and for what you have done for us. And um, thank you that we are not dependent on our own strength, that calls and admonitions like this are not along the lines of, this is totally on you, figure it out, make it happen, do it in your own strength, but that rather you call us to rest in you, to trust in you, that you provide the strength and the ability that you have left us with your Holy Spirit to enable us to do what we could not do in our own abilities and in our own strength. And Lord, we ask that each person here would be able to go and to live their lives in whatever realms and spheres you have put them in, in such a way that we are being salt in the earth, or that we are preserving and protecting that society is is the influence of your truth and your gospel is causing society to move closer to you rather than farther from you. And that it would be fueled by a work of the gospel and more and more people coming to you um, Lord, even as we sang in the song right before the sermon, um, speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. And that is our prayer and our desire that more and more people, through their contact with us, through their contact with others, would see your beauty would see your glory, would see the way that we live our lives and would say, the hope that that person has, I want. The peace and joy that that person has, I want. And that they would be uh, prompted to ask, how is it that you have such a sense of joy and peace despite the circumstances in your life? And that you would give us the right words and the right amount of boldness to proclaim to them the source of our joy, the source of our hope, the source of our confidence. May you be exalted more and more in our lives and then through that in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.